Thanks, Ace. Let me, let me pray before I begin. Father, may your word dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, we're continuing our series called Follow Me, where we're looking at several of Jesus' parables in the book, in, in, in Luke's gospel. In fact, those parables that are unique to Luke's gospel, those parables that appear only in Luke's gospel. And again, for those unfamiliar with the term, a parable is a story that Jesus told, a short story that Jesus told, in this case, a very short story that Jesus told, that illustrates a spiritual truth. And some of them are really, really well known, right? Um, while others of them remain, uh, remain unknown or largely unknown. And last week, in what is perhaps Jesus' most celebrated parable, we met the Good Samaritan, whom we saw not just as a good example of what it means to be a good neighbour, but actually as a picture of who Jesus is and what he did for us. This week, you will have noticed, we meet another neighbour, this time the reluctant neighbour. And it's a very short parable. It appears there in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 11. If you have your Bibles open, read along with me. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. That's it. But much like the parable last week, we need to understand the context in which this parable was told. This parable doesn't actually appear on its own. It's part of a larger section of teaching. That's why I had Ethan read verses 1 through 13. And as is the case with many of his parables, Jesus is prompted to tell it. And this time, he tells it in response to a request by his disciples, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus does. These verses are all about prayer. It's not just about the parable. What Jesus has to teach about prayer is not just contained in the parable. What Jesus has to teach about prayer is not just the Lord's prayer. These verses actually belong together because in them, Jesus teaches his disciples and us to recognise three things as we pray. Are you ready? First, to recognise God's greatness. Second, to recognise God's generosity. And third, to recognise God's goodness. Okay, so there, there is a roadmap for you today. If you're getting lost, there is a map for you to follow. This entire passage begins with Jesus himself in prayer, you'll have noticed. And the disciples think, well, look, if we're going to follow Jesus, we ought to do what he does. They instinctively know that to follow Jesus means that they probably should resemble him. They, they ought to play follow the leader, so to, to, to speak. And on this occasion, they saw or heard him praying. And so they ask, look, Lord, teach us to pray. And as Jesus teaches them, he is teaching us. How should we pray? Well, first, we should recognise God's greatness. 
That is the foundation of this model prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. You should recognize God's greatness. But then he doesn't actually start where you think he should start. When we pray, we needn't begin by calling upon the high, almighty, illustrious, majestic, sovereign to express how great God is. We can actually begin by simply addressing God as Father. Prayer is as simple as a child making his or her needs known to their parents. Now, I know that the picture of God as Father may be a little troubling to some of you. Some of you may have regrets as a father, yourself. Some of you may have had an abusive father or an absent father or a disengaged father. And I want to acknowledge right up front the injustice of all that. But listen carefully to what Jesus has to teach us about how to pray. Because it actually it teaches us something about the character of our Heavenly Father. I have a friend whose, whose father uh, betrayed their family. There's no other way to put it. He, he left his wife and his kids for another woman and he was entirely unrepentant of it. And... My friend was so troubled by it all that he didn't want anything to do with his father. In fact, he went so far as to change his name. Okay? But so great is our Heavenly Father that we ought to be seeking that his name be hallowed. When I first prayed this prayer with Naomi, she thought I was saying hello to God. And then she thought that I was saying hollowed. As in hollowed, I don't even know what that would mean. But hallowed is not hollowed, far from it. We're to pray that God's name be honoured above all. We're to pray for God's glory and renown. And actually, in praying that your kingdom come, we're looking forward to the, to the day when, when all this will be realised by everyone, everywhere. And the second half of the Lord's Prayer has as its foundation God's greatness also. Because in praying things like give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation, we're actually recognising God's ability to do those things. We wouldn't pray them otherwise. Just take forgive us our sins, for example. Think about what God has done in order to make this prayer even possible. Because the wages of sin is death. Forgiveness was costly. And we get a glimpse of this ourselves, don't we, as we seek to forgive others. Because although we would all agree that forgiveness is admirable, even the world would agree that forgiveness is admirable, it's actually not that easy. It's been said um, that some bury the hatchet but leave the handle sticking out of the ground so that it's ready to grasp them when they want it. And I think, um, I think husbands and wives know, uh, know of this. Or we can resonate with that, perhaps even more so. But our God has buried the hatchet for good when Jesus died and was buried. And God raised Jesus from the dead, not so as to uh, use our sins against us, but so that we too may have new life both now and forevermore. And actually, this is, it's beautifully captured here as 
in the Apostle Peter when he writes this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. God is great. So now to the parable of the reluctant neighbour or the friend at midnight. Well, actually, you can read it even a few times and it's not actually clear what Jesus is trying to teach. Um, the parable would have been set in a small village where there are no shops. No shops open at midnight anyway. Picture Tambourine Mountain, say, after about 4 p.m., okay? And Jesus begins there in verse 5. Suppose you have a friend. And then in verse 7, he's going to continue, and suppose... Okay, so this language is actually important because it gives us a clue as to how to understand this parable. Jesus may as well be asking, look, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And the implied answer is no. So what is Jesus picturing here? Verses 5 and 6. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Now this might strike us as a bit of an odd situation to find yourself in, either on the part of the, the guy who asks or the guy who is asked. But the reality of life back then in this part of the world is that this type of sharing was, and providing was actually ordinary. This was not an extraordinary request. In this culture, hospitality was a crucial obligation. And actually, it still is in the Middle East, if you visited the Middle East. And the community had this shared sense of responsibility when it came to hospitality. And to not show hospitality brought shame. Shame upon that person, their family, but also the community in which they lived. And so that the neighbour would refuse uh, to help is meant to be absurd, okay? It's meant to be absurd. And this is reinforced by these lame excuses that he offers up in verse 7. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and, and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Now, ironically, that might be exactly what we might expect to hear these days. Okay, if a friend comes to knock at your door at midnight. But this sort of reaction back then was unbelievable. It was cringeworthy. No friend would turn down an urgent plea for help such as this. Now, in a Western context, we may not appreciate the, 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 or value the need to provide hospitality at all hours of the night <laughs> to unexpected guests. And so we can find this hard to appreciate, hard to appreciate the urgency of this situation, all the sense of duty. And so uh, for us, it would be like a friend who calls in the middle of the night to tell you that his wife was in labour and that he needed to get her to the hospital, but that his car wouldn't start. Could he borrow yours? And which of you would say, look, I'm sorry, but I left the car keys in the kids' bedroom. 
Now, I can empathise with the concern of not waking children at night, right? I can empathise with this concern. But this is, this is a lame excuse. This is a lame excuse. Jesus is asking, look, can you imagine a neighbour such as this? And the answer is no. Of course, we, we, we can't imagine. And yet Jesus now closes the parable in a somewhat puzzling way. Verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now the word there, shameless audacity, can be translated or means, they've translated the shameless audacity, which is entirely appropriate, but it can also mean boldness or shamelessness. And I take it in this context to be a good thing. He was shameless. He asked. And the neighbour eventually caves. And here is the application of the parable. Are you ready? Jesus actually gives it to us. Here's the application. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, to unlock this parable, we need to understand here that Jesus is setting up a contrast. He's setting up a contrast. One of the reasons I think this parable um, can be difficult uh, for us is that deep down, we assume or we believe, actually, that he's comparing God the Father with this, with this neighbour. The scenario that Jesus pitches in this parable was meant to be far-fetched. And yet, isn't this exactly whom we can sometimes picture God to be like? The reluctant neighbour. It was supposed to be far-fetched. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty close to our perception of reality. Deep down, we just don't believe that God is as generous as he keeps saying he is. And so when it comes to God, we can sometimes find ourselves standing or sitting or kneeling on the front porch. Reluctant to ask, discouraged to seek and afraid to knock. I wonder if you can resonate with any of those. And yet the neighbour's reluctance in this parable, friends, is not a reflection of our heavenly father. He is a contrast to our heavenly father. If a sluggish and selfish friend, friend can be reluctantly moved to meet his friend's need, how much more will our great and generous and good heavenly father be moved by our humble and bold and persistent prayers. We can knock. Even though, like this fella, we have nothing. And we can knock expectantly. God is not like the person in the house. He is not unwilling to answer prayer. He will get up and give. And he has, not least of all, in Jesus. And so we ought to be recognising his generosity in all things. And you can do so at any time. At 
any time of the night, at any time of the day, at any time in your life, it is never an inconvenience. We will always be welcomed by him. That's why we sung that song for the kids by Colin Buchanan. You can tell the Lord that you love him anytime. You can tell the Lord that you need him anytime. Thank you for his love and care. Shoot him up in arrow prayer. You can tell the Lord that you love him anytime. What a beautiful expression of this truth. Sometimes I think the kids get it better than we do. And the whole point, the whole point is not, look, go on praying because God will eventually cave. That's not the point. It is go on praying because God responds graciously and generously to the needs of his children. We can depend on the Father's goodness and love. And friends, this leads us to our third point, where Jesus teaches us one final thing as to how we should pray. We should recognise God's goodness. Verses 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We can pray with confidence because our Heavenly Father is more inclined to give good gifts than we evil fathers are inclined to give good gifts to our children. And not only is our Heavenly Father more inclined to give good gifts, but as God, only He ultimately knows what a good gift is. If, if you're a parent, you will know that sometimes children can ask for things that will harm them. We went to the Sunshine Coast a few weeks ago and we had the chance to visit Australia Zoo. And one of my children, who will remain nameless, um, asked whether he or she could go and pat Charlie, the crocodile. Not all of our requests, if given, would be good for us. And we, like children, cannot at the time or may never appreciate why. But there is one good gift here that Jesus explicitly names and that our Father will always give to those who ask, and that is the Holy Spirit. We can pray for, for anything at any time, but the greatest gift God could give us is the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that allows us to call God Father. And if God is our Father, then we are His heirs, co-heirs with Christ, to use the language of Romans 8. We enjoy all the rights and privileges of children of God and we stand to inherit eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What a good gift that is. You will have noticed that, um, that God is our Father actually brackets this Jesus is teaching on prayer. Do you notice that? He starts with Father, 
hallowed be your name. And then he ends with this image of this earthly father as compared to heavenly father. And I think he does it because it enables us to know that God is father. Actually, it enables us and encourages, encourages us to pray and to pray in a certain way. Uh, to me, though, um, prayer can sometimes feel like uh, eating your vegetables. No offence to the vegetarians out there. Or to uh, doing exercise. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, I know that I should do it. But too often, in practice, it's something I don't do. I I'm guessing that I'm not alone in that. And yet, in teaching us how to pray, Jesus has encouraged us to pray because he has revealed something of God's character to us. We don't need to stand or sit or kneel on the porch, reluctant to ask, discouraged to seek, afraid to knock. God is not like the reluctant neighbour. He is the great and generous and good Father. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, I know that, well, this isn't all that Jesus has to say on prayer, <laughs> these 13 verses. Okay, so this sermon won't have answered all your questions. There's, there's a, lot, a long way to go. There's actually a few more parables that are coming up that have to do with prayer. But I think it's important at this stage, given what Jesus says here, you know, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be open. I think it's important to remind ourselves of what James, Jesus' brother, has to say, because James actually helps us avoid two pitfalls, okay? The first danger is, is not asking. That's the first danger. So James writes, you do not have because you do not ask God. That's the first danger. The second danger is, is asking selfishly. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with, with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, we can, we can fall off either cliff, can't we? But remembering that God is great and generous and good is going to every time reorient us, help us. And so there is more to say on prayer. And indeed, in our growth groups this week, we're going to be unpacking this parable and what it has to say about prayer and what it might mean for us in our lives. For the moment, we're actually going to finish uh, by <clears throat> listening to the Lord's Prayer. And, and I want to encourage you to be reflecting upon the words, be reflecting on Jesus' teaching on prayer that you've heard this evening. So as you watch, reflect now on the Lord's Prayer. Reflect now on what he has had to say about prayer. Reflect on the great and the generous and the good Heavenly Father. So let's, let's watch this together and then we'll sing another song.